before we get into the scripture, I have a book recommendation for us, because that's what I love to do. Uh, so, this book is called Spurgeon's Sorrows by Zach Eswine. And for myself, uh, a few years ago, I was going through uh, like the hardest time of my life. And a friend recommended this book to me. Uh, he hadn't read it, but he recommended it to me. Uh, so I read it, and Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon was an English pastor and preacher. Some people coined the nickname for him the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest preachers uh, in the English language ever in the 1800s in England. And he suffered through his entire life with depression. Uh, and Zach Eswine, also a guy not sh- no stranger to suffering and depression, and so he weaves in and out Charles Spurgeon's story and his words in like just a beautiful, beautifully written way. Uh, it's pretty brief, so I can't recommend it highly enough. You'll kind of see uh, how it'll come in to uh, our sermon and what we're looking at today. But Spurgeon's Sorrows by Zach Eswine. We have a few copies in the bookstore. You can get it on Amazon also. So let's go ahead and turn in God's word, to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. We'll do the thing together that we did last time. So uh, to remind us, like, in an age of distraction and we find ourselves, like, compulsively checking our phones, right? Like, I find myself on, like, three sites, and I've just checked those three sites, 30 minutes ago, but I'm checking them again, and it's just new, 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 new information to all this stuff, constant feed, distraction. Uh, We come right now to something ancient and something that, like, God has given us, Uh, something, something that Christians throughout years have looked to through centuries, through millennia, and found God here, because this is God's word. So when I'm finished reading God's word, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. You guys are going to say... Thanks be to God. We're getting there. Okay. So, hear the reading of God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. 
See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, Father, I ask um, as we come under your word that your spirit would breathe life into it, uh, that we would see Jesus, that he would be made much of today. Um, And Lord, uh, we just come before you and we all say together, uh, we're weak and our flesh is weak and we need you. Thank you that you you don't need our strength. Thank you that uh, you're not looking to get something out of us, uh, but that you have graciously provided everything we need. And so now I ask that, uh, that your word and the singing of songs to you and the taking of communion and praying with one another and confessing our sins and moving in your spirit, that it would be the daily manna we need today. We look to it, uh, we look to you for it. And we say together that you are good, you are in control, you have never done us wrong. We will never blame you for evil, God. Even if, even if we go through pain, we know you are good and we love you. So we pray this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So I take, my, uh, I take Mondays off, and Mondays are typically like my Sabbath day. Uh, so I would on Sunday, but I'm normally working. So Mondays are like my Sabbath day. And guys, this past Monday was like the best Sabbath I've had in years. It was, it was just so good. I, I got up early and I finished reading a book that just like stirred my guts and like just had me so wrapped in it. Uh, it's called You Are What You Love by Jamie Smith. Go ahead and pick it up if you want. Uh, but that was so good. And then, uh, then, then Bo also had said uh, that he was going to take Ariana to Disneyland for, his birth, for her birthday because uh, he's a really good husband. Uh, so he said that, and then he, he said, hey, so can you take Lewis, who's their dog, named after C.S. Lewis, can you take Lewis on a walk uh, on, on Monday? And guys, you need to understand, like, me and Lewis, we, we've been through some stuff together. Like, uh, probably, probably the most, like, hardest weekend of my life, uh, they were out of town, and I stayed at their house, and me and Lewis were just together. And so me and Lewis, like, we have this thing together, so I go to pick him up, and we, like, lock eyes, and he's just like, we, we just understood each other. And we, just, and we just took this beautiful walk through the campgrounds, and Monday was such a nice day. And then uh, after that, I get back, and I just kind of kick it out the house for a little bit and relax. And then uh, I went, and uh, I've been working out. My friend Hanaro has been working me and Bo out. We've... We've been going for more of a tone than a bulk, so just in case you were wondering. Um, uh, but he's like, he's working us out hard because he's a soccer player and he like, he's a really fit guy. So he's been working us out hard and we went on this the hardest run and probably 80% of the time I was just hating life. But then there was that last little 20%. I was like, wow, this is good. Um, so... Uh, and there's also this quote by a rabbi named Abraham Heschel. And he says, uh, he, who, he who works with his mind should Sabbath with his hands. Right? So it's not in the Bible, but it's pretty good wisdom, I think. Uh, so I'm normally reading books. I'm hanging out with 
junior hires discussing, discussing the finer things of life. So it's like really good to like get out and do something physical. And then we just had worked up such an appetite and we're like feeling it in our bodies. Like we just need, we just need food and sustenance. And no matter what we were going to eat, it was going to taste so good. But then we kind of like, we're talking about, well, what should we do for dinner? I said, hey, there's a place I've really wanted to go for a long time, and I've never been. Uh, he's like, oh, what is it? And I was like, it's like the sushi place called Arigato. And he's like, all right, I'm down. Let's do it. And so we're like, okay, we go. And I'm on the way, and I'm texting Shawnee uh, what to get because Shawnee loves sushi. And he tells me, like, to get all this rant, like, I've never, this ahi carpaccio and, like, all this stuff. So we order it, and we start eating it, and we just look at each other like, oh, my gosh, this is so good. And so we get, like, that, and we get tempura shrimp, and then we get a few rolls, and we look at each other, and we're so satisfied. And Jin's like, uh, Hinaro says, should we get another roll? I was like, yes. And so we just get another huge roll. And it was just so good. I go home, and I just woke up the next day, and my heart was just so full, right? You know those days where you're like, my heart is just so full of joy. And, like, I'm texting the guys. I was like, man, that was, like, the best Sabbath yesterday. They're like, oh, cool. Like, I was trying to, like, invite them into it. But it was just, (laughs) it was so good. And as I was thinking about it this week, I don't know if it was a, just like kind of a subtle irony or maybe the voice of the Lord, I think, speaking to me. But he said, do you remember where you were three years ago? And I was thinking about it. So I started recounting like, oh, man, where was I at three years ago? And the details, details don't really matter. Stop being nosy and trying to get in my life. Um, <laughs> But three years ago, I was in, like, the darkest night of the soul that I've ever experienced. I felt, I felt like I had train wrecked my life. And I, I just, I'm living in Santa Barbara, but I go outside, and, like, it was like I can't feel the warmth of the sun, right? And not because it's cloudy outside. That's just, that was... That was where I was at. And so I even went back to my journal uh, that I was writing in at the time. Went back to October 16th, 2014. And I had, I had three separate entries on this day, which is a little unusual. But I'm writing and I'm, I'm reading the words I wrote. And I just said, I'm hurting right now. I want to come to you in my weakness and time of need. I need you. Sometimes I feel so alone. And then later in the day, I wrote down, I, I just can't deal with everything in life right now. I need you. And then I came back a third time. Guys, like, wow, John, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing a lot better now. But at the time, I'm, I'm right, I write down, my heart is so broken. So I'm remembering those things. And I think... I don't think we have trouble with knowing what to do when the days are so good. When we're enjoying the good gifts of God, books and thoughts and dogs and salt water and sushi, like, I don't think we need 
help in, like, what do I do with this? We enjoy and we praise God for it and fills our hearts. But what do we do as Christians when we're in a spot in life and it's like life has just kicked the trash out of you? Like you wake up and your first thought is, I can't wait until I go to bed tonight. That's my favorite time of the day. What, what are we supposed to do with that? And I also want to encourage you guys, maybe you guys haven't been through one of these uh, kind of dark nights of the soul. Uh, and I say this out of love, not as some kind of grim prediction, but the Lord promised us that we're going to have suffering in this life. And so one way or another, a time's coming where it's going to be so hard. And we need to know as Christians, what are we to do in those times? Zach Eswine, in the book I recommended, uh, he, says, he says the following. He says, Christians are used to being students of the cross. But Charles Spurgeon invites us to find our Savior's help in the Garden of Gethsemane. Bodily pain should help us to understand the cross, Charles says. But mental depression should make us apt scholars at Gethsemane. The sympathy of Jesus is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. So in the text, the disciples have just told Jesus. Jesus predicts, Peter, you're going to betray me. You're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. You're going to deny me. And Peter says, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. Classic Peter statement. And all the disciples join in too, and they say, yeah, we all agree. We'll never deny you. We'll never leave you. And so that's the last thing that's happened. And now we pick up in verse 36. and says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. We know from the Gospel of John that this is a place where Jesus would often retreat to. So it's kind of a, it's a place of comfort when in those hard times you go to this place to meet with the Lord. And Gethsemane, we also know from the name, uh, it's an olive orchard. And there's a place, there would be in here, there would be in here an, an olive press. So they take the olives and they have to press it down with so much weight and so much pressure that it, finally produces olive oil, which you guys all use in cooking. Uh, do you know what I just found out? Olive oil, 100% of the calories are fat. Fat's not bad, but anyways, that's beside the point. Uh, <laughs> you know what olive oil is. How do we get olive oil? Just the crushing, pressing of heavy weight on the olive. And this is a garden. Jesus takes his friends here and he says, I, I need to go over there and pray. Would you just sit over here? Would you just be in the same place as I am? I'm going to be just a little bit over there. And he's sorrowful and he's troubled. And we see in verse 37, it says, um, it says taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And so he takes with him, he has the 12, but then he takes his three closest friends. He says, hey, will, will you guys even come a little closer and come over here with me? 
And then he starts to let his guard down even more. And he says to him in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. I put it up on the screen this way because I think sometimes when we, we have the chapter and the verse number and everything and it just becomes like uh, it's a, the Bible is just this textbook to us. But these are words that Jesus said and he said to his friends. Do you imagine your friend saying these things to you? You leave church and you're driving home and you get a call and you answer it and your friend just starts telling you, my soul is so overwhelmed, I feel like I'm going to die. Would, can, you, can you just come? Can, I need to pray. Would you just come and be with me? This is where Jesus is. This is the state of our Savior in the garden. I'm wondering if any of you, have you guys ever been there? Have you guys ever been there? Like, you're so overwhelmed by the weight of life in the world, and you feel like you can't fix it, and you just want some friends to be with you. And you feel pressed in on every single side and no reliefs in sight. And you're like, I just, I, I just need somebody who knows me and loves me to be with me. Jesus knows what this is like. And not only, not only are you longing for friends to be there, but they're there and they just fall asleep on you in your greatest time of need. Story continues, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is the only time in all of the gospels that we see Jesus fall on his face he staggers. He's, he can't but take a few steps to the garden, and he just cru- is crushed under the weight of what he's going through, and he just falls down on his face and just starts praying. And he, he, can't, he can't move. He's so under this weight. And so we'll come back to this prayer, but let's keep moving on in the story right now. Verse 40. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them, Again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus, in his greatest hour of need and with his best friends, the one who said, I would die before denying you. He's, he's praying, and he goes, he goes and just asks him, will you just stay awake? He prays, and he comes back, and they're sleeping. 
And he says, oh, could, could you not just stay awake? Please watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. You don't fall asleep again. And so he goes back and prays a second time. And then he comes back and they have fallen asleep on him again. And a third time he goes and he prays. And he comes back and they've fallen asleep on him again. Now the hour's at hand. He's going to be betrayed and he's going to go to the cross. And that's the story. It's, it's pretty simple. In nature, Jesus is really sorrowful and sad and he's just praying and his friends let him down and he gets betrayed. And then he's going to die. But they're like, there has to be something underneath this text. There has to be something more to this. Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death. He's so fearful of what's to come. Luke, in his gospel, even tells us he's sweating like drops of blood. And so we have to ask, why would Jesus, who throughout his entire ministry has been proclaiming, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise from the dead. That is what's going to happen. Why is, he, why is he at this point faced with so much trepidation? I mean, he knows he's going to rise from the dead. He knows that. And so John Sott has so eloquently put in his uh, book, The Cross of Christ, he says, are we, are, we supposed to think, are we supposed to think that Jesus is like less courageous and less bold than other men who have faced their death with valor and courage and dignity? Like Plato or Aristotle, who with, with straight posture drank the poison, they weren't, they, weren't, they weren't falling under the weight of it. They weren't taking steps and just collapsing. Or how is it that people, people throughout history who looked to Jesus as their inspiration, were able to face their deaths with more courage than Jesus. How is that? How is it that Polycarp, an early, early, early Christian who was going to be burned at the stake, uh, how is he going to be able to, how is he going to be able to face his death with dignity? How is John Huss, one of the original men who really uh, started the movement to get the Bible translated into the common language in English, how is it he faces his death with dignity and courage. Or William Tyndale, of whom we still have most of his translation retained in our Bibles today. How are these people able to face their deaths without the kind of crumbling that Jesus experienced? Like, why is Jesus so afraid? Well, there's something, there's something deeper going on in the garden. And to understand what that is, we need to understand both the garden itself, and the cup. So first, the garden. Matthew and all the other gospel writers as well, they, uh, they draw attention to the fact that this is a garden. This is a garden where Jesus is. And so throughout, throughout the entire Bible, the garden, a garden is a picture of human flourishing and God's blessing. You know, in the book of Genesis, God placed Adam and Eve in a garden, in a paradise there. And then we know that the book of Revelation, it ends in a garden city where the flourishing of mankind, humanity represented in a city. 
the presence of culture and everything that's good, how we've cultivated the raw stuff God's giving us. It comes together with a garden, and it's a garden city. That's where the book is going to end. That's where all will be for all of eternity who have trusted in Christ. It's this picture of human flourishing. Yet, too, we know that it was in the garden where Adam and Eve were first tempted by that serpent, said, hey, you can be like God. Just do what you know is best. Just eat this fruit. And so they fell in a garden. So Jesus is staggering through this inverted garden of sorts, where the Garden of Eden was a beautiful place of paradise for flourishing, The Garden of Gethsemane is a place of crushing, a place of being squeezed out. And he's tempted with the greatest temptation we've ever known. And so the gospel writers are drawing our attention by placing, by calling attention, this is in a garden. They're saying, hey, pay attention. History here is being rewritten. The first Adam fell in a garden. Second Adam, as the book of Romans calls Jesus, is now faced with an even greater temptation. But what is this temptation? What what would be so tempting? To understand that, we need to look at Jesus' prayer. And in Jesus' prayer, we see our attention is drawn to something. It's drawn to the cup. And so we have to ask, what, what is the cup? Jesus' prayer is this, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Uh, before we really talk about the meaning of the cup, many people want to say, want to explain the garden scene in this way. They want to say either, you know, why is Jesus so sorrowful? What's his temptation? Well, Jesus is sorrowful because his disciples have fallen asleep on him. His friends have like in his greatest time of need, they're not there for him. Or another thing people want to say is that he's looking forward and seeing, I know I'm going to the cross. And so he's sorrowful because he knows how painful that's going to be. He knows the scourging he's going to take. He knows, what's, he knows I'm going to have nails driven through my flesh, tearing tendons and bleeding out blood and being barely able to even take a breath. They say that's, that's what it is. He's, he knows I'm going to face the, the most painful death. Or the third thing people want to say is, no, it's, it's probably he, he's feeling the heartache of being betrayed. He's being betrayed by someone who said he was your friend, said they loved you, they said, I'll never leave. That's what he's feeling. And while, while it's, certainly, it's certainly not less than any of those things, it's certainly not less than any of those things, it has to be more. There must be more. Jesus, Jesus he never mentions the disciples in his prayer. If, if he's so sorrowful over uh, being let down by them, surely he would be talking about them to his father. And Jesus, he never mentions the betrayal with his father. 
that, that's not what's breaking his heart in the moment. Surely it is, but that's, that's not what's going even further underneath. He, in his prayer, only addresses two things. First, it is all to the Father, and it is all about the cup. The cup. So, throughout the Old Testament, this picture, the symbol of the cup, is used in one of two ways. The first is the cup of blessing. Cup of blessing. So we see this in a couple places, uh, such as Psalm 23, where he says, My cup overflows, surely goodness will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We see it in Psalm 16, uh, where David proclaims, says, The Lord Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. So that's one way the cup is used, and we have to, we automatically say, well, you don't really tremble over receiving the cup of God's blessing. But there is another way that the Old Testament uses the symbol of cup, and that is the cup of God's wrath. Now, there are those who will claim that God's wrath does not exist that it is an invention of like medieval Christianity or that it's like a passe atonement theory, that it's one among many and some people who just kind of have a grit for life just hold on to this one thing. But it's just, you get to pick and choose what you want. And friends, I need to tell you, I get, I get we hear God's wrath and it, it does something in us where we tremble, but to deny God's wrath is to be ignorant of the teaching of the scriptures and to deny one of the most, the most central event of all of history. And even especially you college students, some of you are being told that God's wrath has nothing to do with the cross. I remember having to read some of these books and thinking, I'm wrestling with him. What's, what's going on here? But as Christians and as people of the book, believing God has spoken, we must always come back under his word. So I, I put together quite a few verses to show us the cup of God's wrath is very present throughout scripture and we must, we, we have to do something with it. We have to. It wasn't just someone's idea. So, in the book of Job, let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink the wrath of the Almighty. Ezekiel 23, probably the gnarliest chapter in the entire Bible. I didn't even put in, go read it some other time and look up some things to understand it. This is very understandable here. You have gone the way of your sister. God is speaking to Israel and her, Israel's sister is Samaria, who is worshiping other gods. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out. 
and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Isaiah 51, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Psalm 75 in the book of Psalms, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And in Revelation 14, we see he, speaking of Satan, also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. God's righteous right hatred of all that is evil and wicked and causes human flourishing to die and causes death in every sphere of our lives, God's right hatred of that is revealed as his wrath, which is symbolized as the cup of wrath throughout the Bible. Now, there's, there's a couple of, a couple of objections that commonly come up, and so I want to walk through these with you, and I want us to go right back to God's word. And like, how are we to answer these things? So the first is that some would say, isn't this divine child abuse? That's the real phraseology that's used in books. Jesus taking God's wrath, that's divine child abuse. But we have to, we have to boldly say, no, that's not. Because Jesus himself said in John 10, no one takes it, speaking of his life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus, to the, to the question, is this child abuse? Is this divine child abuse? He says, absolutely not. Because Jesus, in eternity past, spoke with the father and they said, you know what it's going to take to redeem humanity. You would die for them. And Jesus willingly, on his own accord, said, yes, I will do the plan of the Father. I will lovingly come under what he says because he loves me perfectly. And I love him perfectly. And I can choose to lay down my life. And I can choose to take it up. And so this is not divine child abuse. This is Jesus' choice. He chose to do this. A second, a second common thing we'll have come up is people say, well, where, where does it say we are saved from God's wrath because of Jesus' blood? Like, isn't this just some theologians at some point just try to logically put together some pieces? Like, isn't, isn't the Bible just a story and that's, that's just logic trying to figure out God? And to that, we say, well, we go back to the story, which is God's word, and we see verses like this, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, made right in his sight, declared innocent and just and righteous, because Jesus shed his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to unrighteousness and live to righteousness. We can clearly say, no, we are saved from God's wrath because of Jesus' blood. I have more verses in the notes if you would like to get them after. And I want, I want you to understand this. The issue of God's wrath, which we write, rightly, we rightly, when we come to it, we should tremble. We should never boastfully talk about God's wrath. I even, I even almost started, I kind of started going there in first service. Those people are wrong and we're right. If I was not saved from God's wrath, I have no hope in this world. Let me even tell you, if Christ on the cross did not absorb the wrath of God, but still rose from the dead and guaranteed a resurrection of the dead for you, you don't want that resurrection of the dead because you are still dead in your sins and you have sinned against God and you rightfully deserve his punishment. You do not want to meet a God who still has wrath righteously stored up for you. You do not want that. The cup of God's wrath, it makes men stagger. Matthew tells us Jesus fell on his face. It fills with drunkenness and sorrow. And Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. No one wants to drink this cup. That's why Jesus says, my father, if there is any other way, let this pass from me. He's not saying, I don't want to do your will. He's saying, I'm feeling the full weight of it. And if there was any other way, I would do that other way. Is there any other way? Adam in the garden said to God, my will be done. Benevolent creator of the universe had placed him in a place to flourish, just enjoy the goodness of God's creation and he committed cosmic treason against that creator of the universe. And so we too have said to God, my will be done. I know what's best. I know, I know the best way to use my body. I know the best way to use the things you've given me, substances. I know the best way. I know when I don't need to forgive somebody. I know when they need to suffer enough. I know how to live my life. We too have sinned against God, and we've committed moral evil against him. And so God says, I can't tolerate this moral evil. I want a place of flourishing and goodness where people love each other. And we deserve his wrath because we have done wicked things. But Jesus, the second Adam in the garden of Gethsemane, said to the Father, if there's any other way to redeem humanity, let's do that. But your will be done. And so, too, that is the prayer of a Christian's heart. You want to know, how do I know if I'm a Christian? It's at the end of the day, of course, do we want to suffer? No. 
Do we want to go through the hardest things of life? No. Do we want to always deny ourselves? No, but at the end of the day, at the bottom of our hearts, of our regenerated, blood-bought, God-given new hearts, we say, but not my will, your will be done. And so Jesus, he's sorrowful to the point of death. Can't take a few steps without staggering, falling on his face because he knows he will drink the cup of God's wrath for those who would believe. The cup that was ours to drink, he drained down to the dregs on the cross. Because Jesus drank the cup of death, he can offer his followers to drink of the cup of the new covenant. So we understand that and we understand, okay, this is, okay, I see there's the cup of wrath and I understand how that's integral to our salvation, all these different things. But I also want us to see how even in our Christian life, in our daily life, the garden is a dear refuge for our souls, a dear refuge for our weary souls. So why is this? The first reason is it's there in the garden that we see the fullness of God's humanity. There are times when no friend will be able to help you. And let me tell you, every relationship you have, every friend, every, any spouse you have, will your pastors, we will let you down. We can't bear the full weight of everything you need. And Jesus knows what it's like to ache at being let down by other people. He knows what that's like. He knows the fullness of human experience. And in my own dark night of the soul, I remember sitting right over here. And as the second set began, I started to pray and come to God and just tell him, I'm sorry. I, I know it's been a couple years. I know I'm not, I, I feel I, sh- I should be over this right now, but I'm not. I know I shouldn't have gone there. I know I shouldn't have done that. I know I, I basically, I know I should, be in, I should be further along than I am. And I'm just sorry. And I'm just ready fully to just have God kind of disappointed. Like I know he still loves me, but he's probably right now pretty disappointed. And I just, by the Holy Spirit, I think heard his voice say, ready to disappoint my father, said, I know. I know that's where you're at. I, I know you're not further along than you are right now. I know what it's like. I, I know. And he knew like no one else has ever known. And I think it's what, it's what the book of Hebrews is getting at, where in Hebrews 2, it says this, For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. I think we really have that backwards. At least I do. My own heart often does. I think God, for sure, does God care about his angels? Yeah, and he knows how to take care of them, and they're doing great. The book of Hebrews says, 
Church, it's not for angels that he came. It's for you. He knows how to help you, and he wants to help you. And it's why the writer of Hebrews goes further in chapter 4, and he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to to our confession, because he's our great high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And even because I know it's the nature of my heart, I say, well, is Hebrews really talking about the Garden of Gethsemane? And how's that actually for me? Hebrews chapter 5, the writer says this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Clearly referring to the garden time, he offers up prayers with tears for us. I want you to look at me. Because Jesus, our great high priest, he doesn't despise your weakness. He's not ashamed to call you brother. I don't care where you are in life right now. He's not ashamed. He partook in flesh and blood so he would fully know. You are fully known. And he knows and he's willing and ready to help. As the song, O Holy Night, says, he knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. Secondly, we see in the garden, no matter how brutal our suffering is, we who have trusted in Christ will never suffer forever. We're helped to know both that Jesus is with us in our suffering, that he can, he can sit in a room with us and just be there, the ministry of presence with us, knowing the ache. And we are also helped to know that because of Jesus, our suffering won't be forever. And I, I know what it's like I know what it's like to be so depressed that you, you feel like the talk about heaven and the resurrection, it just feels so far away and you just need to know that someone's with you right now and Jesus is there for you then. But it is also good news that he will never leave you there forever. Psalm 139 says, even the darkness is not dark to God. He'll be with you there but he will not leave you there forever now i also want you to know it doesn't matter it doesn't matter the cause of your suffering or your depression you're going through right now for how jesus is able to help are you suffering right now and is it is it because of sin and you just kind of man well i made some really bad choices and now i'm suffering and so it's my own fault that's why jesus came 
That's why he's offering you his compassion. He's saying to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll switch yokes with you. I'll give you rest. And you say, well, well, I mean, I knew it was sin, and then I did it anyways. Then I sinned. And it's, I want, that's what sin is. You knew what was right, and you did what was wrong over and over again. Repent, come to the Lord, and stop trying to pay for your sin yourself. Stop staying in that place. Get up, confess, receive grace. That's why when we come to receive communion, we don't bring anything there. It's been provided for us. So we bring our need for daily sustenance. That's what we bring to God. If you're suffering because of sin, that's why Christ came. Is it betrayal? If you just, you thought that person would never leave. Or they, they told you, they told you something and just completely betrayed you. The man of sorrows knows what that's like. Or is it the pain of death? Our final enemy? That thing that nobody can escape? And it's there to remind us something's wrong with this world. This isn't how things are meant to be. Jesus, he wept over Lazarus. He knew he would raise him from the dead and he just came to be Mary and Martha and just weep with them. Jesus, he knows your pain. He's here to weep with you. And he's also the resurrection. He's our only hope to defeat that final enemy, death. Or is it like, if you're like me, is it just a web of all these different things? Like, yeah, it's my sin, and I was hurt by somebody else, and it's just also the suffering of the world, and I don't even know how to disentangle all this stuff. God's understanding is beyond measure. He, he knows the details and he's able to help with all the confusion there. Lastly, we see in the garden the struggle of prayer between the desire for the flesh and the spirit. We see in our Lord Jesus what prayer can be like. Right, can I be straight with you? I've had some of the greatest times of prayer in the last few years. And prayer has been so hard in the last few years. And I don't want to pray. There's a lot of times I just don't pray. I'd rather read a book. And it's just hard. And there's what my heart wants, my spirit wants, but there's what my flesh wants too. Hold on to this. Jesus, he prayed the same thing, the same exact thing three times. Sometimes you come back to the Lord over and over again with the same exact thing. And that's what you need to do. And that's where you need to take it. Jesus prayed the same thing three times. What's Matthew doing here? I think what Matthew is doing here is planting a stake and he's drawing our attention to something, and he wants us to see, he wants us to see something that runs throughout the entire story of Jesus. 
Three times Peter will deny Jesus. Thirty pieces of silver were given to Judas for his treachery. Three times the Son of Man prays there be another way. And three times the disciples fall asleep. Even Jesus' closest three. On the cross, he's mocked. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And then from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness covered the earth. And at three in the afternoon, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he lay dead in the ground. But on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil. And that ancient serpent in the garden who tempted him three times in the wilderness. And so now, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, saved by the eternal plan of the Father, bought for us by the work of the Son on the cross, and communicated to us by the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, God three in one. And it's the reason Paul, and so we too, can come to God and plead three times, Lord, take this thorn from my flesh and conclude that your grace is sufficient for me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, there's no one that's loved me like you've loved me. There's no one who is able to save other than you. So God, I pray for your saints. I pray for those who are just hurting. Would you comfort them? Would you come? Would you be near? I ask that your Holy Spirit would drive us to confess the things we need to confess, that your Spirit would be poured out right now. And Father, you, need, you know what we need, and so we just ask for everything we need. Would you give us the fullness of your Spirit right now? Would you pour it out on us? We need you. Thank you so much for drinking the cup of wrath. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, too, for the garden. You are the God of all comfort. You are a shepherd. You're the ancient of days. Comfort and shepherd your people now. I said, we, the people of God, would minister to one another and pray for one another and meet, meet with one another. Pour out your spirit. In Christ's name. Amen.